Like I said, we're going to be in Mark 11 this morning. Uh, and if you were with us in the fall, you know that we worked our way all the way up through Mark chapter 10, and we learned a great deal about Jesus, who he is, what he came to accomplish. He's the Messiah, the king of God's kingdom. He came to bring God's kingdom to earth. He invites us to become citizens of it. But through the first 10 chapters, we saw he really keeps that a secret. Like He plays it close to the vest, and whenever people start talking about him being the Messiah, he says, don't tell anybody that. And then last week, we picked back up in Mark chapter 11, and all that secrecy goes away. As Jesus leads his disciples and the crowds up to Jerusalem, the capital city of God's kingdom, and he, he makes this demonstration to show very clearly, I am claiming to be the Messiah, the king of God's kingdom. He did that in two ways. Uh, first, he intentionally fulfilled a prophecy about the Messiah, which was that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. So Jesus gets a donkey and he does that. The second thing he does is hit the crowds following him, some of them rush up ahead of him, presumably at his instruction, and they start quoting this messianic psalm. They start making all this noise and all this fanfare saying, here he is, here he comes, here's the Messiah. So Jesus is very clearly drawing attention to his claim here that he is the king of God's kingdom. He also made a second demonstration on his way into Jerusalem. It's the next day, and we're going to see that this morning. It happens in Mark 11, verses 12 through 26, when Jesus and his disciples go back into Jerusalem. So turn there with me if you haven't, and we will read from God's word. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And he came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. This is the word of the Lord. This summer, our family bought a new house. Or it was a new house to us, but it's not a new house. In fact, it's a very old house. It was built in 1931, so it's more than 90 years old. Uh, and if you've ever purchased or sold a house, you know that a critical part of that process is the home inspection. Unless you live in Nashville and you just want to put in a strong offer and you say, we'll just waive the inspection totally. But if you buy a house from 1931, I don't suggest that you waive the home inspection. Uh, our house, we love it. It's beautiful, but it's really old, which meant that this home inspection caused me a great deal of anxiety. And Lex, our inspector, uh, went over to the house and he took his little camera and he took his little notepad and he just took pictures of like every single thing in the house and wrote down notes about everything. And the way that he does this, which we really appreciate, is he doesn't just send us an email with a list of things to fix. He actually prints and binds our home inspection report. 
And so we waited for this thing anxiously, and when we got it, I would imagine that compared to other home inspections, it looked like a Dickens novel. It was huge, and it included all of these things that he took pictures of and wrote down, but nothing in it was catastrophic, right? It was all like relatively minor things that we could fix, and so we kept asking him, what does this mean, Lex? Like, do you recommend we live in this house? Can we, are we going to be safe? Is this going to collapse? And of course, he has his own liability in mind, so he would say things like, well, for a 90-year-old house, it's in good shape. For a 90-year-old house, it looks pretty much like I would expect it to look, so that wasn't super helpful. Um, but if you've been in our home, you know that what that means is a 90-year-old home is that there, there's probably not a single right angle anywhere in the house, but it's not falling apart, and it hasn't been for 90 years, so we're just trusting that it's not going to. Now, when Jesus went into Jerusalem, he performed his own home inspection of sorts. Verse 11, which is sort of the bridge between last week's passage and this week's passage, says that he goes into the temple in Jerusalem, and after looking around at everything, he and his disciples head back out of town to Bethany, where they're staying. Jesus was inspecting the temple. And the temple was the center of the religious and national life of Israel. It was a place of great pride. It was a place where they believed that God dwelt and, and people could draw near to God's presence. And so Jesus goes there where people are drawing near and worshiping God together, and he's looking around like Lex was at our house, taking note, looking for anything that's troubling, anything that might need to be repaired, anything that might need to be replaced, asking, do we just need to bail on this thing altogether? And the picture that we get is that Jesus goes in and inspects the temple, and he's making a plan, and he's going to come back and enact that plan the next day. And boy, does he ever. The next day, when he and his disciples get into Jerusalem, they go straight to the temple, and Jesus just makes an absolute scene. I want you to imagine with me that you got here this morning, and maybe you were here early, you were volunteering in some way, and you know, we, we set up the chairs, the worship team was rehearsing, and then we get to 9.30, 9.40, and, and we have our call to worship, we start singing, praying, and then all of a sudden, a loud, angry-sounding guy walks into the building, and he's like quoting Old Testament Bible verses and pointing fingers at like, me and Clint and Nathan and accusing us of being bad leaders, uh, calling God's judgment on us, what would we do? We'd be pretty startled. Uh, Corey and Austin would probably be trying to take the guy outside. Jack's probably got the police on the phone, right? Like we would, we would rightly be freaked out by this guy. But that's not dissimilar from what happens here. The temple is just going about its business, and here comes an angry Jesus, now, it's Passover week, and as we mentioned last week, that means there are lots of pilgrims in town, people who have traveled long distances to, to be here at the heart of the whole thing in Jerusalem during Passover. And naturally, they want to go to the temple and worship. Now, since temple worship involved the sacrifice of animals, and since it would have been very inconvenient to bring those animals with you on a pilgrimage, like if they're, if they're alive, then you have to deal with a live animal for a pilgrimage. If they're dead, then that causes its own sorts of problems. So it's perfectly natural that they would buy those animals to sacrifice when they get to Jerusalem. And since people came from different places with different kinds of currency, uh, there needed to be people there who could exchange the currency. Just like if you travel abroad and your plane lands and you need to go change your, your American money out for some other form of currency. So all this, in theory, is pretty unexceptional. It's what you might expect. So why then does Jesus flip out on these people? I think we find three reasons in the text. The first is that the temple had become completely commercialized. Now, it wasn't necessarily a problem that the people had to buy and sell animals or that they had to exchange money. That could even be seen as a service to worshipers to make their, their worship of God uh, easier. 
But it's that all of that business was crowding out any opportunity for actual worship or prayer or connection with God. There was lots of religious activity, but there was no actual worship. The temple, Jesus said, quoting Isaiah 56, was meant to be a house of prayer, but these temple leaders had turned it into a place of commerce. I mean, did they really have to sell the animals in the temple? Like, Jerusalem was a big city. They could have set up their little booths somewhere outside of the temple, don't you think? Couldn't they have exchanged the money somewhere outside of the temple? But instead, they do it in the temple. And by the way, the quotation from Jeremiah 7 in verse 17, you have made it into a den of thieves, at least implies that perhaps the temple leaders were not just like, you know, running this business in the temple, but maybe they were profiting off of it a little more than they should have. Like maybe there was some imbalance in the scales. So Jesus goes to the temple and he finds a commercialized religious organization. He also finds an exclusive religious organization. Now where in the temple was all this racket set up? It was set up in the outer courts. Do you know who the outer courts were for? They were for the Gentiles, for non-Jewish worshipers, for people from the nations to be able to come and worship God. The way that the temple was set up is like the further you move toward the center, the holier it gets. So in the very center is the Holy of Holies where God's presence is said to dwell and only the high priest can go and only once a year. And then on the other end of the spectrum is you get the outer courts where the Gentiles, the people from the nations, the unholy people can go and worship. And it's in these outer courts that all the clutter and chaos of animal selling and money changing is happening. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but when I really feel the need to, to pray, to get alone with God, to confess something to him, to hear from him by meditating on his word, I don't go to Broadway. Uh, I don't even go to like my favorite coffee shop. When I really need those moments, I get up early before anybody else in the house is awake and I go to my study where it's quiet and there's no other noise and I can feel that I'm alone with God and connecting with him. The environment that you're in affects your worship and your prayer and this temple system had completely ransacked the worship environment of the nations. That's why Jesus emphasizes, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you've taken the only place where non-Jewish people can come and worship and you've turned it into a county fair. People can't worship in that environment. In other words, you've excluded people. The nations, the Gentiles, people whom God wanted to invite to worship him were excluded at the temple. So Jesus found a commercialized religious organization. He found an exclusive religious organization. And he found a religious organization that was under human control. After he causes this scene... The chief priests and the scribes, that is the people who are in charge, kind of huddle up together. And it says that they immediately start looking for a way to kill him. Why would they do that? It says because they were afraid of him. Because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Do you catch what's happening here? The temple leaders had control over this whole system. They had control over who worships, over where they worship, over how conducive their environment was to worship. They were profiting off of it, evidently a little more than they should have been. And, and Jesus comes onto the scene and he calls them out. He exposes them for all of this. And what they see when he starts calling them out is they see the people are listening to Jesus. And so they, they start to feel their control over this whole system just slipping through their grasp. And so they plan to kill Jesus. 
What did the inspection report of Jesus turn up? It turned up a busy, active, seemingly alive religious system that was completely corrupt. It was commercialized, it was exclusive, and it was under human control. And by the way, that sure can happen to a lot of churches, can it? You don't have to look far to find stories about religious corruption. It's at the top of your podcast charts. It's on the top of your Netflix recommendations. And you don't have to look far to find commercialization in religion. We live in Nashville, Tennessee, which along with Grand Rapids and Colorado Springs is part of like the trinity of commercialized Christianity, right? We don't have to look far to find this. You don't have to look far to find human control over religious organizations or religious exclusion. And apparently this can even happen in the liveliest religious context. The temple system appeared to have so much life. There's so many people, so much activity, so much busyness going on. And this could be true of many churches, right, that, that are religiously active but spiritually dead. And if we're honest, the critiques on the temple could also be leveled not only on churches but at, at individuals. We all tend to try to control our lives instead of letting God control them. We all want to exclude certain kinds of people, if we're honest, we all tend toward cluttering our lives with religious activity instead of genuine spirituality. We, like many churches and like the temple, naturally participate in a religious system that looks a lot like a particular fig tree in verse 13. And maybe you thought I was going to skip over the fig tree. I wanted to talk about the temple first because the fig tree is a living parable for what's going on at the temple. So the day after his temple inspection, Jesus wakes up. They're getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and he's hungry, and he sees a fig tree, and he goes to see if there's any fruit on it, and it's not even in season for fruit, nonetheless, and he doesn't find fruit, and so he, he starts yelling at the tree and cursing it. and says, may nobody ever eat fruit from you again. That's not a great look for your Messiah. Uh, let's be honest. Jesus is a little hangry. Like one of his disciples should have given him a Snickers. What's actually going on here? Jesus is enacting a living parable of Jerusalem and of the entire temple system. And we know that, by the way, because the way that Mark lays this, out, lays this story out is fig tree, temple, fig tree. Right? So there's like a temple sandwich. Whenever you see that sort of setup, A, B, A, you know that, that there's a relationship between these two things. Right? So there's a few different ways that people understand this sort of living parable, but the main point is agreed upon that the fig tree is a picture of the temple system. It has leaves, so it gives the appearance of having life and activity and growth and stuff going on, but when you look a little closer, there's no fruit. All the religious activity is not producing anything real or authentic or vital or life-giving or nourishing. Now, people have explained the details differently. Uh, Mark includes, like I said, the detail that it wasn't yet the season for figs. And so some people have said that, that fig trees start sprouting leaves before their season. And then like between the leaves and the actual fruit, they say there, there comes these little nodules that are almost like pre-figs that apparently are small and delicious and come in before actual fig season. So some people say that Jesus was looking for those uh, and that they should have been there and they weren't there and in the same way there should have been delicious and nourishing fruit coming from the temple, but there wasn't. Now, I don't know anything about fig trees uh, and I've also heard people say that that's not true and those little things taste disgusting, so I, I don't know. Other people say, this was an interpretation in the early church, that the leaves are an allegory for the law and that fruit should have grown up in Jerusalem after the law and because of the law. In other words, if the people in Jerusalem were really loving God, 
with all their heart, loving their neighbors as themselves, were obeying the Ten Commandments, that then real spiritual fruit would have grown up from that. But in reality, in the end, all they had was the law, and they didn't have any fruit to show for it. Other commentators on this passage remind us of the first time in the Bible that we see fig leaves. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, the first humans, have sinned, and of course, immediately after sin enters the world, what comes next? Shame. The Bible says they, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed, and so they tried to cover their shame by sewing fig leaves together. Perhaps these fig leaves are covering the shame, the fruitlessness of the fig tree, just like all of the religious activity of the temple system was covering up Jerusalem's spiritual fruitlessness. Whatever the particulars, the main point is clear. Jesus curses the tree for its fruitlessness, and he consigns it to death. And in the same way, he finds no fruit in the temple system or in the whole Jerusalem complex, He finds no fruit in our own corrupt religious systems, so he consigns them to death. Now, in that massive inspection report that Lex gave us, he not only included problems, he also included recommendations. So some things, he said, needed to just be checked in on, some things just needed a little TLC, other things really needed repair, and other things needed to be totally replaced. Jesus is saying that the temple... This corrupt and fruitless religious organization needs to be completely replaced. Now, when might something need to be replaced? I can think of a few instances. First, something might need to be replaced when it's no longer of any use to you. How many of you all grew up with home phones? Pretty much everybody, right? Uh, How many of you still have a home phone? Yeah, nobody. Why, right? By the way, do you all still, like those of you who grew up as kids with home phones, do you still have your home phone number memorized? Yeah. Uh, Nobody has home phones anymore. Why? Because when cell phones became ubiquitous, like nobody needs a home phone anymore. What's the point? It's just a waste of money and space, right? So some things need to be replaced because we just have no use for them anymore. Other things need to be replaced when they're no longer working properly and when they're broken beyond repair. So if you get in a little fender bender and you take your car into the shop, they're probably going to say, you know, for, for several hundred dollars, we can fix this. But if you get in a serious wreck and you take your car in and they say, look, the, the, the cost of repair is going to be worth more than the value of this car. What do they tell you? Your car's been totaled, right? You just, need to be re- you just need to replace it. You need to get a totally new car. It's broken beyond repair. And then other things need to be replaced when they were never intended to be permanent in the first place. So our daughter, Lydia, is two and a half, and she used to eat all of her meals in a high chair. She no longer does that anymore. Uh, why? Because the, time, the, the high chair always had an expiration date on it, right? It comes at different times for different people. But if, if you have like a 13-year-old who's still eating dinner in her high chair, then we have a problem, right? It was never meant to be a permanent solution. The temple system of Jerusalem needed to be replaced for all three of these reasons. One, it was no longer of any use. In John chapter 4, Jesus is having this conversation with this woman, and she starts asking him theological questions. She asks him, where are we supposed to worship? And he says, well, it used to be the case that you needed to worship in the temple, in this very specific place. But he says, now that I'm here, you don't have to do that anymore. He says, I'm going to send my spirit, and and that means that, that you don't have to come to God's presence in a particular place anymore, but God's presence is going to come to you. The temple system was for a time... But now that the Spirit has come to all believers, we, we don't need it anymore. So it can be replaced. Second, the temple system was also broken and damaged beyond repair. Jesus does this inspection, and he doesn't suggest a couple tweaks. 
He doesn't say you just need to install new leadership. He says this thing is so corrupt that it cannot be fixed and it must be replaced. And then third, the temple was never meant to be permanent in the first place. The whole system of the temple was part of the Old Testament law. And Paul tells us in Galatians that the law was always meant to serve as a tutor. It was teaching and training God's people and pointing them towards something else that was coming, namely the gospel. And once the gospel comes, the tutor is no longer needed in the same way. So for all these reasons, Jesus is going to replace the temple system. Now, what is he going to replace it with? The next morning, Jesus and his disciples wake up in Bethany again, and they're going back to Jerusalem. And his disciples, who heard his little conversation with the fig tree the previous day, notice that it is completely withered overnight. Uh, and obviously, this is miraculous, right? Like, even an unhealthy tree wouldn't go from appearing fine to being totally dead overnight, right? There's, there's, there's power to the words of Jesus. His curse was legitimate. And so they ask him for an explanation, and I've got to tell you, the way that Jesus responds here is not what I'm expecting. Like when I read this story and they say, Jesus, what's up with the fig tree? I would have expected him to tell you everything I just told you for the last 10 minutes. Instead, he basically says, yeah, and if you have faith in God, you'll get answers to all your prayers too. And also, if you're ever praying and you need to forgive somebody, go and forgive them, and then God will also forgive you. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? I think that Jesus is not responding to them by explaining the meaning of the fig tree. He doesn't tell them what the fruitless fig tree is a picture of, namely the dead religious system of the temple. Instead, he responds by telling them what he's going to replace it with. He's going to replace the temple with a community of faith and prayer and forgiveness. The temple was supposed to house the very presence of God. It wasn't supposed to be a place of commerce or exclusion or human control. It was supposed to be a place where people could come and connect with the one true God. And when it ceased to be that kind of place, it really ceased to be the temple. Uh, and so what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to replace that with the real house for my presence. The real house for the presence of God is not a building where a lot of religious activity happens. It's a spiritually vital community full of faith and prayer and forgiveness. Jesus is replacing the temple, the place of corrupt, fruitless religious activity, with the church, a community of faith and prayer and forgiveness. Jesus gives these, these three markers or signs of a spiritually vital community. The first is faith. He says, have faith in God. There's no mere going through the religious motions here. The motions of a spiritually vital community flow out of faith. They flow out of deep conviction and commitment and allegiance to God. And even, by the way, when that faith falters, even when doubt comes, we don't go through the motions as a replacement for our faith, but we do continue going through the motions to hold us until our faith comes back, which, by God's grace, it does. The second marker Jesus gives is prayer. Faith overflows into prayer. He talks about praying out of faith. And by the way, pr prayer isn't merely petition. It isn't merely asking God for stuff, although Jesus talks about that here. But the essence of prayer is presence with God. It's, it's being present with him, spending time with him, considering his word, contemplating who he is. And Jesus says the temple, which is supposed to be the very house of God's presence, was meant to be a place of prayer, and it's gotten so crowded out that people can't even pray there anymore. Like, that was, that was the whole point of the temple. If God's presence was allegedly there, people coming there should have been able to get into his presence. The third marker 
Jesus gives of this new community is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the means by which people are included, brought near to God and to one another. The temple was a place of exclusion. People were kept out based on their nationality or or whatever, and we could add a number of other reasons that people are kept out in our day. But the spiritually vital community that Jesus is replacing the temple with is a community of forgiveness. And by the way, it's important to say that, that Jesus is not uh, that, that Jesus is, in fact, replacing the temple with a community. He's not replacing a religious organization with mere individual spirituality. That's what a lot of us in our day might like to hear Jesus saying, right? We might like to hear him say, uh, organized religion is corrupt, therefore all you need is you and your Bible and the Spirit and me and you're good. That's not what Jesus gives us. We don't catch this as much in our Bible translations because Bible translators are too sophisticated to use the Southern colloquialism, y'all. But these yous, especially in verses 22 and 24, are y'alls. They're the second person plural pronoun. So a more literal translation of verse 22 would be, y'all have faith in God. And a more literal translation of verse 24 would be, everything y'all pray and ask for, believe that y'all have received it, and it will be y'alls. Jesus is not replacing an organized religion with individualistic religion. He's replacing a spiritually dead religious organization with a spiritually alive one. A community of authentic, genuine, real faith and fellowship with God and one another. And we hear that and we think that's great news because we all hate corrupt religion, right? Like, like who's listening to the Mars Hill podcast and being like, this is great. I really want to be a part of a church like this. Nobody, nobody has that response, right? So the question is, like, if this is what Jesus is creating and we think that's good news, how do we get it? How do we experience it? How do we become a part of this community? Here's, here's the, the problem. I, I can't just get up here and preach at you and tell you that we should work really hard to be this kind of spiritually vital community and then that we would see it happen. Now, we're a brand new church. We're not even a year old, and it is critical, it's essential that we be this community of faith and prayer and forgiveness and not the other kind of community. If we're ever going to want to see, you know, see anything happen that we want to see happen, if we're ever going to be useful to other people or really experience God here, this needs to be true of us. But if I just get up here and hammer away at this and say, you know, we must reject commercialization, we must include all people, we must relinquish human control, we'll never actually be able to do it. Why? Because naturally, In our nature, we don't have the capacity to do it. Ironically, the harder we work to manufacture a spiritually vital community, the more it will turn into a dead religious organization. Think about it. What are our solutions for problems in the church? If we look around and we think we need to up our attendance, uh, we need people to read their Bibles more, we need need to offer more things for families, for the kids, so people will bring their kids here, what are we going to do? We're going to try to create solutions. So we're going we're to work really hard. We're going to do more programming, more events, more activities, more stuff, give people more directions and instructions. We're going to work and work and work. And before you know it, our church will be so crowded out by programs and activities that there won't be any space for prayer for worship, for connecting with God. We'll be full of fig leaves and have absolutely no fruit underneath. We cannot manufacture this kind of community. We can't create it on our own. We can't come into it by working hard. So how do we get it? Jesus has to give it to us. Hard work only produces more fruitless religiosity, 
Faith and prayer and forgiveness come through an encounter with Jesus. What is faith? Faith is an active and abiding trust. It's a believing in, a placing your weight on some person or object. But if you read the whole Bible, you realize that the amount of faith that you have isn't actually that important. What matters is the object of your faith. Now, Jesus says some things here that taken out of context of the rest of the Bible might confuse us on that front, right? It may seem like he's just saying, if you have enough faith, all your prayers will be answered. But Jesus can't be saying that because the rest of the Bible contradicts that. The experience of the church for 2,000 years contradicts that. Jesus' own experience in the Garden of Gethsemane contradicts that, right? Jesus is just using hyperbolic language to talk about the relationship of faith and prayer and the relationship of both to the community of God. The rest of the Bible tells us very clearly that what matters most is not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith. Now, you may have heard me use this analogy before, but if you're walking around in an attic, you know that there are some parts of the attic floor that you can step on and put your weight on, and other parts that you should not put your weight on. But when you're up there, what matters is not how confident you are, It's not how much faith you have that a certain spot can or can't hold you. It's whether or not you put your weight on it and whether or not it can hold you. You can be 99% certain that a particular part of the floor is safe to walk on. And if it's not, and you put your weight on it, you're going to go through the ceiling. And on the flip side, you can be like 1% confident that another part of the floor will hold you. And if you step out on it, and it's a safe spot to walk. No matter how scared you are, no matter how trembling you are as you do it, you put all of your weight on that part of the floor and it will hold you because it's a sure foundation. Jesus is the perfect object of our faith. He is the only sure foundation that can hold all of our weight. And it doesn't really matter that much whether we're 1% confident of that or 99% confident of that. What matters is that we actually put our weight on him, that we actually have faith in him. Religious activity can't do that, by the way. In fact, religious activity is a terrible thing to put your faith in. Doing stuff for God as a means of being accepted by him is exhausting and it's fruitless and it will always leave you bitter at God and bitter at other people. It's a terrible, terrible thing to put your faith in. But Jesus is the perfect object of our faith. And then through faith in Jesus, we can pray. Do you know that you actually can't pray to God except through Jesus? Like, you, if prayer is coming into the presence of God, you can't do that apart from Christ. Psalm 15 talks about this. David asks the question at the start, Lord, who can come into your presence? And he answers with a long list. He says, the blameless person, the righteous person, the person with integrity, the person who doesn't slander or harm others, the person who's in right relationship with other people, the honest person, the just person. If you have any measure of honesty with yourself, by the time you come to the end of that list, you know you're completely disqualified. In fact, we don't even have to get past the first descriptor. It says, who can come into your presence? Only the blameless person. Okay, like, we're all out. Nobody's blameless. Therefore, Psalm 15 says, you cannot come into the presence of God. You can't pray. There's only one person in history who fits the description of Psalm 15, and it's Jesus. And Jesus is the Son of God. He's always in the presence of the Father. So faith in Jesus allows us to pray through Jesus. Faith and prayer and forgiveness also comes through Jesus. The the spiritually alive community is a community of people who have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. People who know they're sinners. People who know they don't love God and love others like they should. 
yet people who also know not just that Jesus generically died on the cross for sin, but that he died on the cross for my sin. And I've been forgiven by him. Jesus says this spiritually alive community is a place of forgiveness, but you know you're not a naturally forgiving person. Nobody is, right? Like we, we hold grudges, we nurse our resentment toward people, we, we harbor anger and bitterness at them. But what happens when you see the gospel and you realize you've been forgiven by God's grace? You start to forgive other people. When you realize like, I have infinitely sinned against an infinitely holy God and he has paid an infinite price to forgive me of that sin. And you start to look around at the, the ways that other people have harmed you and hurt you. And of course, it's, it's not okay. I'm not saying it's, it's just okay, it's just fine, we'll just forget about it. But when you realize that you've been forgiven of infinitely more than anybody could ever do to you and that Christ was willing to pay the price for that, you start to become willing to pay the price of forgiving other people of their sins against you. Jesus is the one who creates a community of faith, prayer, and forgiveness. He creates the spiritually alive community. How does he do it? How does he do it? Well, ultimately, the the living parable of the fig tree isn't just about the temple. The fig tree isn't just a picture of the temple. It's also a picture of Christ. Christ himself is the the perfectly fruitful fig tree. Psalm chapter 1 describes a righteous person as a tree that's planted by streams of flowing water that bears fruit. Jesus is the only righteous person, the perfect tree that is filled with the streams of the Holy Spirit and that bears more fruit. Everything that Jesus did bore fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus was full of all of those things all the time. He was the perfectly fruitful tree. And yet, that perfectly and abundantly fruitful tree was also cursed. Just as Jesus cursed the fig tree, Jesus himself sat under a curse. The Bible says that anyone who's hanged on a tree, this is part of the Old Testament law that the New Testament writers pick up on, anybody who's hanged on a tree, it says, is is under God's curse. Jesus was put on a tree, on a cross, to bear our curse. And in taking God's curse on himself, he was withered. He dried up. He died, and he did it in our place to forgive us, to redeem us, to purchase us. He traded places with us so that through faith we could pray, and we could be forgiven, and we could become a community of faith and prayer and forgiveness. And when you realize that, it changes everything. You no longer just want to do a bunch of religious stuff. You actually want to be with God. You trade your exclusion of other people for inclusion. You trade constant activity for prayer. You let go of your control and submit to God. That's the kind of person you want to be. A a free and spiritually alive and filled and refreshed person. And that's the kind of church we want to be. A church of people who don't hold grudges against one another, who forgive one another, who, who pray together in faith that God is going to respond to our prayers. The gospel The truth that Jesus traded places with us and took our curse on the cross is the only thing that's going to make you into that kind of person. It's the only thing that's going to make our church into that kind of church.